Despite being shot in the face in the trenches, Lieutenant J. Douglas Winslow wanted to get back to fighting in the First World War. While recovering in hospital, he wrote in a 1917 letter to his mother, Taking it all through, I had a pretty good time in France. While recovering from his wounds, he saw a mysterious call for volunteers heading to an unknown destination. It read, A number of officers are required for a hazardous enterprise in a foreign theater of war. These officers must have the following qualifications, the spirit of adventure, undoubted courage, and ability to quickly estimate difficult situations. They must be of strong character, adventurous spirit, especially good stamina, capable of organizing, training, and eventually leading irregular troops. He, along with his childhood friend, joined up for the mysterious secret mission the now largely forgotten Canadian military expedition to Siberia. You're listening to Backyard History, the hidden stories that happened in your own backyard, the podcast version of the weekly history column running in newspapers across the Maritimes, with your host and author, Andrew McLean. By September of 1918, 28-year-old John Douglas Winslow, standing 5 foot 9 and weighing only 121 pounds, had been fighting in the First World War for four years. While recovering from being shot in the face at Passchendaele, Winslow's mother had written him a letter from his hometown of Woodstock, New Brunswick. She begged him not to return to the muddy trenches on the Western Front, and instead take a position far away from danger in the safety of a military base in England. Evidently exasperated by his mother's concern, and annoyed with his life recovering from his wounds on light duty on a base in the safety of England, Winslow wrote back, Mother, I'll make it plain right now. I hate this sort of life worse than poison, and simply can't content myself here. I'm not doing myself any good for nothing if I'm here too long. And another thing, I'm not doing anything for my country hanging around in this camp. I've got a job a child could do. Some are satisfied with that sort of thing, but I, for one, am not. Determined to return to fighting, when a mysterious call for Canadian volunteers to go on what was being described as a hazardous enterprise in a foreign theater of war went out, Winslow eagerly signed up. It's not entirely clear where he thought he was going, but he breezily prepared for it by going on a shopping spree, buying fine clothes in London. In a late August 1918 letter to his little sister Charlotte, Winslow wrote, I got a new tunic from my tailor. It's entirely satisfactory. It's a very fine cloth, but my, such things do cost money these days. He told her he would be going on a secret mission in which he would be receiving a danger pay bonus, an extra 40 cents a day. It seemed that rumors must have been circulating about where they were going, because he cryptically wrote in a letter that, From all accounts, we won't be able to spend much where we're going, so I should soon have quite a bank balance. Only when he boarded the ship to an unknown destination and was given heavy winter clothing did it begin to dawn on him that he was being sent to Russia. 
John Douglas Winslow was one of 4,192 Canadian soldiers who were sent on the now almost completely forgotten Canadian intervention in the Russian Civil War, which lasted from 1918 to 1919. The vast majority of the Canadians were sent to Vladivostok, which is next to China on the Pacific Ocean. For the most part, these Canadians were far away from the fighting. Winslow, however, was aboard a ship with a much smaller group of Canadians who were being sent to the opposite side of Russia, the High Arctic, on Russia's northern coast, along the Arctic Sea. The closest nearby country would be Finland, but that was 1,000 kilometers west of where they were. These Canadians were caught up in some brutal fighting, and some of them never made it home. As his ship headed towards the Russian High Arctic, Winslow wrote in a letter to his mother, The trip isn't very interesting, as there's nothing to see but water all around. I'm commencing to think I'd make a pretty fine sailor, as I haven't been sick yet. A great many of the men were sick for the first three or four days. As for his fellow Canadians aboard that ship, Winslow wrote, We have a very cosmopolitan crowd on board, as you may well imagine. Many of them were fellow Maritimers, and he named several men from PEI, New Brunswick, and Nova Scotia. He was most excited to learn that his new commanding officer and his roommate aboard the ship was Captain Alexander Oliver Mowat from Campbellton, New Brunswick. Winslow called him Ollie. Ollie and Winslow's fathers had been friends since the two were young boys. The working class roots of Ollie, who was 25 years old, contrasted to the more wealthy and privileged upbringing that Winslow had enjoyed. Ollie, who stood 5 foot 7 and weighed 134 pounds, had been a traveling salesman before the First World War, when he had enlisted all three of his brothers. Ollie's older brother, named Morton Maxwell Mowat, had been killed two years earlier. He had been a pilot who was shot down above Germany. The tragedy of Ollie's brother's death was made worse by bureaucratic bumbling. First, his family had been told by the army that his plane had been shot down, but that he was safe and healthy in a German prisoner of war camp. Two months later, the family received a letter with a correction. Morton Maxwell Mowat had actually been killed in the initial plane crash earlier. Ollie himself had been wounded three times during the war and decorated twice for bravery. His most recent wound had been severe. A bomb dropped by an airplane had landed right at his feet. He was sent all the way back home to Campbellton, New Brunswick, where he had spent six months relearning how to walk again. The army had offered him command of a training base in New Brunswick, but he declined. Just like Winslow, he too chose to go on this mysterious secret mission to an unknown destination. The ship that they were aboard landed in a Russian port which was already controlled by Allied forces. Winslow wrote a letter to his little sister that he was surprised to find that The town looks rather nice. 
all wooden buildings. The public buildings and churches all seem to have a dome-shaped roof with many minarets, quite different from any style of architecture I've ever seen before. However, from the very moment he set foot on Russian soil, he immediately sensed that the Canadians were not wanted there by the local people, writing, I don't think the inhabitants of these parts are what one might call pleased over much at our arrival. If the Russian citizens were confused about what exactly Canadians were doing there, Ollie and Winslow were probably equally, if not more, bewildered. At the time, Canada was a British colony, and it didn't have much control over where its troops were sent. The Canadian government had actually not wanted their troops to participate in this Russian expedition, who were overruled. The British were insistent on sending Canadians for the simple reason that they figured that both Canada and Russia were cold countries. It actually seemed that Winslow agreed with this logic because he wrote in a letter, The climate is very similar to what we have at home. What the British, and by extension the Canadians, were actually doing in Russia was actually less clear though, both for everyone at the time and even looking back in hindsight. The mission had been planned in faraway London, just as Russia had teetered on the brink of a revolution. It had been intended to prop up their allies, the Russian government, which was then on the brinks of collapse. A massive multinational allied army called the Siberian Expedition, comprising some 15,000 troops was assembled, including soldiers from Britain, Finland, Poland, Canada, Australia, Serbia, France, Italy, Czechoslovakia, the United States, and China. However, by the time the Siberian expedition actually got there, that friendly Russian government had been swept away by revolution, and the country was rapidly descending into the Russian Civil War, a horrifically brutal conflict that would ultimately cost around 6 million people their lives. And so this multinational group of soldiers, including Canadians, was now occupying a large portion of Siberian wilderness, while their leaders back home debated about what they should do next. Should they just stay and somehow try to fight against the communist revolution in Russia? Or should they just go home? Winslow wasn't concerned about these overall geopolitical issues though. He was more focused on getting news from the First World War that was still going on in Europe. The conflict was still going on at that time, but it was rapidly nearing its end. He wrote in one letter to his sister, From what we hear over the wireless, how well the Allies are doing, I don't think the war will last much longer. On October 1st, 1918, a small group of 25 Canadian soldiers, including Ollie and Winslow, were ordered to go downriver, deeper into Russia. Winslow warned his little sister in a letter. When we get inland, mails may not be regular, but don't let mother worry if you don't hear from me often, for no news is good news, remember. They boarded a barge to head down the river towards the heart of Siberia. Winslow wrote, The river is really pretty and quite a bit larger than the St. John. This country is quite different to what I had imagined, not nearly so wild and uninhabited. And what surprises one the most 
is the good-looking houses. They look very much like the buildings at home. As they moved deeper into the heart of Siberia, the Canadians would likely have noticed that there was little or no actual fighting going on. The main opponents were supposed to be the largest and most powerful communist faction, called the Bolsheviks. The Bolsheviks military was led by a man named Leon Trotsky, who had almost single-handedly built them from a chaotic and disorganized rabble into the formidable Red Army. Trotsky had a surprising Maritimes connection himself. Only a year earlier, he had been locked up in a prison camp in Amherst, Nova Scotia, a story we told recently on an episode of the Backyard History Podcast. If Trotsky had any lingering hard feelings against Canadians about his unwanted time spent in Nova Scotia, it didn't show. Trotsky ordered his Red Army to more or less leave the Siberian expedition alone. He figured that the public back home would demand the soldiers be brought home from Russia soon enough. This meant that Winslow and Ollie would be sent to a Russian town where they would just wait. Unsure of what would happen, and not particularly clear on why they were even there in the first place, and with no idea how long they would be there for. On October 21st, their boat arrived at their destination. A large and wealthy town called Shenkursk. Winslow wrote in a letter to his mother that, We are in the town of Shenkursk, just getting settled. It's a fairly large place, and we have good billets. Ollie and I have a large, comfortable room in a nice house next to the convent. The house is as neat as a pin, as you would say, and spotlessly clean. The people we have seen so far look to be much more prosperous and intelligent than we have seen up to the present. With Trotsky's Red Army seemingly leaving them alone, Ollie and Winslow explored Shenkursk. They quickly discovered that amid the revolution, the economy had completely collapsed, and people had simply stopped using money. Locals had reverted to a barter system of trading goods instead, and they discovered that cigarettes were a highly sought-after commodity in trading. One can't buy a thing for money. They will only part with their eggs, potatoes, and birds for cigarettes and tobacco. This morning, Ollie and I went through the village and managed to procure two partridges, two chickens, a quantity of potatoes, and a dozen eggs for 30 cigarettes and a small tin of issue tobacco. I haven't received any letters from Canada. Ollie got one containing some very delicious cake, a large sample of which I enjoyed very much. Tonight we had roast chicken, mashed potatoes, cabbage, pudding, cake, and coffee. Winslow wrote separate letters to his little sister Charlotte and his mother and his father. While his letters to his mother and his sister remained upbeat, On November 1st, 1918, Winslow penned a letter to his father, which hinted that he was becoming increasingly worried. The days are getting very short now. It gets dark at 4.15. Ollie went up the line today with some of the Russian officers. He said there were quite a few Cossacks and some Russian infantry in the district, but I'm sure our little force can show them all up. Ollie and Winslow's position in Shenkursk was boosted by a group of reinforcements. 
several hundred American troops had come to relieve them. On November 8th, 1918, Winslow wrote in a letter to his mother that the Americans had arrived, saying, Yesterday I had dinner with the Yank officers. We had roast partridge, mashed potatoes, turnips, cranberry sauce, and coffee for dessert. Nothing much wrong with that, eh? I went over to the American hospital today. There was a very nice Russian nurse there. I'm having a very hard time to write this letter, as Ollie is playing the gramophone and trying to sing. However, in another letter to his father, he confessed that he was concerned about these Americans. They seem like a decent crowd, but they don't know much about fighting. I can't understand why they sent raw troops up here. He was shocked to discover that the newly arrived Americans were just kids from Wisconsin and Michigan who had been enlisted through selective service, which means the draft. Many were farmers who never even left their home state in their lives. The Americans were young, poorly trained, and didn't even have proper clothing for the coming Russian winter. The ominous tone of Winslow's letter to his father darkened. It's getting quite cold now. The Bolsheviks roam around in large bands. They have no established lines. Ollie is going out tomorrow to investigate reports of them only 12 miles from here. The peasants can't be trusted. It's a very peculiar kind of war we're fighting. Three days after he wrote that letter, on November 11th, at 11 o'clock, the First World War ended. His next letter after that took a much darker tone. I am alive and well. I'm present at the outpost line. I was to have gone back yesterday, but the American captain has asked headquarters to allow us to stay as he hasn't much faith in our Russian allies for some reason or another. We have lost all desire to do more fighting now that the war is over everywhere else. I guess we drew the wrong number when we decided to come to Russia. The American leadership, who were supposed to relieve the Canadians and let them go home, were well aware of how unprepared their own troops were for any serious battle. They requested the Canadian soldiers, including Winslow and Ollie, stay with them in Shenkursk. I may be kept here some days longer. That Christmas, Canada was in a buoyant mood. The exuberance of winning the long, grueling First World War led to an outpouring of joy and festive spirits that holiday season. However, for the thousands of Canadian soldiers in Russia, the war had not ended. Winslow wrote in a letter to his little sister Charlotte. Just think, this will be my third Christmas away. We hardly thought such a thing possible when I left home, did we? I would love to go out and get the Christmas tree with you just like we used to. It wouldn't be Christmas without it. Ollie and Winslow made the most of it, though. In order to try to forget their own homesickness, they went out into the forests and cut down a large tree. They dragged it into the center of Shenkursk, and the Canadian soldiers got together to decorate it, much to the delight of the Russian civilians, both adults and children alike. There were two Christmases celebrated in Shenkursk that year. The Canadians and Americans celebrated it on December 25th, 
by organizing a large feast for soldiers and local civilians alike in the town square. Russians use a different calendar, though, so they celebrated Christmas on January 7th. On the Russian Christmas, the people of Shenkursk organized celebrations for the Canadians. They presented the Canadians with elaborate Christmas feasts, including soup, wild fowl, beef, plum pudding, beer, candy, and cigars. While the Canadians and the Russian civilians celebrated together in Shenkursk, little did they know events were occurring hundreds of miles away that would soon affect them. Thousands of miles away from where they were celebrating, at basically the exact same time, their Russian allies launched a large-scale surprise attack on the communists. This changed the Red Army leader, Leon Trotsky's plans to simply wait out the Siberian expedition. Instead, Trotsky decided that it must go. Three weeks later, Ollie was off on yet another shadowy mission, investigating reports of unusual activity in the area around Shenkursk. Reports had been flowing of large movements of men, but it had been difficult to verify their accuracy, or even who these mysterious people dressed in white were, and what they were up to. At the time, Winslow was at a tiny and isolated advance base on a hilltop overlooking a large ravine named Oost Pendega, which he had simply nicknamed the Outpost. On the night of January 22nd, 700 Red Army soldiers dressed in long white winter clothing attacked the outpost. According to the book Gunners of Canada, the dogged heroism of a Canadian officer, Lieutenant J. Douglas Winslow of Woodstock, New Brunswick, and eight gunners who were rushed forward. In temperatures dropping to 45 below zero, the detachment was instrumental in slowing the attack, Winslow at times threatening his white Russian allies with his pistol to stop them from fleeing. From their position on a high bluff, the Canadian gunners for two days checked the advances of waves of infantry attacking the American outpost. Their shrapnel horribly effective against the Soviet soldiers attempting to cross the valley below. However, the attackers were unfazed and kept coming. Exhausted by the seemingly endless numbers of attackers, Winslow ordered a retreat. Winslow and only a handful of Canadians retreated to another small village called Viscora Gora. As they prepared to defend it, a group of warplanes passed them, dropping bombs on the Red Army that was pursuing them. As the friendly bombers passed by, Winslow and his men as they returned home, one of them dropped a note to Winslow's little band of defenders. It read that even more enemies were sneaking up on them through the woods, and to escape now before they were surrounded. Winslow and the Canadians retreated back towards Shenkursk, the city that they had called home the past few months, and where they had celebrated Christmas only a matter of weeks earlier. Only three days after the fall of Shenkursk, Winslow wrote a raw and emotional letter home, confessing that he had just been through 
a very trying experience. I think it was a much worse experience than anything I ran up against in France, and that's saying a great deal. Shen Kursk was in the woods, and it only had one road into and out of it. The Red Army already controlled the road in, and more reinforcements were approaching through the forest, trying to cut off the only road out of town. Rather than risk getting surrounded, the American commanders ordered a hasty retreat. The thousands of American troops defending the town were already in the middle of a panicked withdrawal when Winslow got back to town. Winslow wrote in that letter that Napoleon's retreat from Moscow had nothing on this one. We had to evacuate that night before we were entirely surrounded. There was only one road open, and it was an even chance we would have to cut our way out. Word we had to evacuate was kept secret until 9 o'clock, and at 11 p.m. we were lined up, ready to leave. We left everything behind, so I lost all my kit. Walking out with only my haversack and the clothes that were on my back. It was a pitiful sight. Those Russians who were our friends, running around well nigh in despair. Some trying to get sleds to escape, others starting for the woods, and others taking refuge in the convent. All the wounded had to be evacuated. As the American soldiers and Russian civilians desperately tried to escape, Winslow and a small group of eight Canadian machine gunners took position along the one road to try to hold off the attackers and buy the Americans, the Russian civilians, and the few Canadians more time to get to safety. As the Bolshevik Red Army advanced on Shenkursk, according to that book, Gunners of Canada, Douglas Winslow and his exhausted gunners were joined by Captain Oliver A. Mowat of Campbellton, New Brunswick, with one 18-pounder to help cover the withdrawal of the Americans. The bolos were soon on their heels, coming from the east and west, as well as from the south. Piecing together exactly what happened that night, though, is difficult. Winslow's letter ended by simply saying, I fought a rearguard action. I won't go into details. It was dreadful. Winslow's letter, written three days after the events that night, is obviously still raw with emotion, and it's quite disjointed. According to his little sister Charlotte, he never told the story of what happened that night ever again. Decades later, in 1980, Charlotte, who was by then an old woman, tried to piece together what happened to her brother that night based on her memories of little snippets of comments that he had mentioned over the years. Charlotte suggested that as Ollie and the eight gunners held off the attackers, Winslow had scrambled back down the streets of Shenkursk during the chaos of the panicked evacuation in a desperate last-ditch effort to find someone. Charlotte recalled that over the years her brother had occasionally mentioned a young Russian nurse. He'd mentioned that she'd spoken English and had gotten a job working for the Americans in their field hospital. Charlotte remembered her brother telling stories of how he had taken a Russian nurse out for rides on a droshki, which was a low four-wheeled Russian horse-drawn carriage, back in the more peaceful times around Christmas in Shenkursk. Charlotte wondered if the person Winslow had mentioned searching for during the evacuation of Shenkursk 
and the Russian nurse he'd mentioned in the decades after were the same person. Amid the chaos of the evacuation, Winslow never did find who he was looking for. He raced back to rejoin Ollie and the gunners who had been holding onto the road. When he got there, he found that the Canadians had been betrayed by their Russian allies, who defected to join the Red Army. A gunfight had broken out between the Canadians and their former Russian allies. During the fighting, Ollie was shot. A bullet passed through his thigh. He survived, but was badly wounded, and was losing blood quickly. Winslow and the few surviving Canadians loaded the wounded captain onto a sled and dragged him into the woods, where they slipped away from the Red Army amid the darkness. Ollie was badly wounded and he needed immediate medical attention. They somehow had to catch up to the retreating Americans who had with them a portable field hospital. With their treacherous former allies controlling the one road, they had to make their way through the unfamiliar Siberian forests in minus 42 degrees Celsius weather while being hunted by the Red Army. Things have must have felt unbelievably bleak that night. But with dawn's rays came hope in the form of an airplane flown by Frank Shriver of Hamilton, Ontario. He spotted the beleaguered Canadian survivors below him in the cold and snowy forest. He looped above them, and he flew away. Shriver then turned his plane around, and he flew back past them. He rapidly spun his plane around after passing them, and he flew off again in the same direction he had before, only 300 feet above the treetops. It became clear to Winslow what the pilot was trying to tell them to follow his plane to safety. From the air, the pilot kept an eye on the enemy movements, leading the Canadians below to zigzag away through the forests, away from their pursuers. They followed that lone little airplane that was leading them on a path to safety, dragging the sled with Ollie on it until they eventually linked up with the Americans and brought him to the field hospital. In his letter, Winslow wrote, He lived till he got to the hospital, which is 26 miles behind where we are now. He was in such weak condition. Winslow used the American's telephone network to successfully contact a Canadian general and get special permission to give him a medal for bravery. By special permission of the general, the military cross for bravery was pinned on him. I think he would have recovered right enough if it had not been for the long cold journey by sled the very evening he was wounded. Poor Ollie died of his wounds. It was a very sad blow to all of us. Winslow and the other Canadians built Ollie a makeshift coffin out of tin biscuit boxes and buried him. Shortly after, the Siberian expedition received a new order. They were going home. Before leaving, Winslow and the other Canadians dug up Captain Oliver Mowat's body and 
they brought it back with them along their long retreat back to the coasts. They brought Ollie's body back on the boat with him to Canada, all the way back to his hometown in Campbellton, New Brunswick. More than 66,000 Canadians died in the First World War, and it was exceptionally unusual for any of their bodies to make it home. The return of Captain Oliver Mowat's body, only a year after the end of that war, was met by a collective outpouring of grief for all of those who had never made it back. Captain Oliver Mowat's burial in the Campbellton Rural Cemetery became an occasion for New Brunswickers and Canadians all over to commemorate not only him making the ultimate sacrifice, but the deaths of so many other Canadians who had passed away fighting in uniform. That was Backyard History with your host, Andrew McLean. Thanks for listening and stay tuned for another hidden story that happened in your own backyard. John Douglas Winslow, voiced by Kaylin Fraser. Produced by Jordan Lozier.